I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parented. Today's podcast examines a relationship that for many is straightforward, but for an increasing number of men and women, girls and boys, is impossibly complicated. Food in an ideal world is something that is plentiful, its consumption enjoyable and social. But for too many people, this is not the case. Their relationship with the food they eat or don't eat is something that permeates the majority of their consciousness. And this makes life that is already complicated even more complicated. When I look at my children and strip back what I really want for them, I want the simple things in life to be simple, for food to be eaten and enjoyed rather than debated and hated. And my question today is whether, as parents, we have any influence over the relationship our children have with food. Well, to answer this question, I'm joined today by two doctors, my co-founder, Dr. Kiara Hunt. Kiara, welcome. Thanks for coming along today. Thank you. And also uh, Dr. Adrienne Key, a consultant psychiatrist who specializes in eating disorders. Adrienne, thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Great to have someone with such a sort of wealth of of knowledge about this subject, because I think very often it is discussed by people who have no knowledge or no professional knowledge of it. Yes, lots of lots of facts out there that that, uh, aren't facts or stories or hearsay that need to be thought through. So let's just strip it right back from the very beginning, because obviously most of us won't have children with eating disorders. But what is an eating disorder exactly? How how do you... So it's important to say an eating disorder is a mental illness and we diagnose it because of a set of symptoms that all have to be present for us to diagnose it. And we are pretty sure now from all the research that it develops because of an underlying biological vulnerability. So that's in the way that the brain functions under stress or starvation. And so those symptoms are about our relationship with food, our attitudes to food and our weight maintenance, as well as how we feel about our bodies. So we all have those relationships but it's the configuration and the severity of weight difficulties and food difficulties that produces what we call an eating disorder. And am I right in thinking, Adrian, that it's basically people who have a biological predisposition to get an eating disorder who will have some of these triggers that will cause them to have an eating disorder, but other people will have all those triggers and not develop an eating disorder. That's right. And so there seems to, you could take two girls exactly the same in terms of they both decide to go on a diet for summer to go into their bikini for the, the holiday period, a very common thing that happens these days. And they both go on the same diet. They exclude the carbohydrates. Um, one has a biological vulnerability in that her brain starts to process emotions and she feels very differently as she starts to lose weight. She feels peaceful, is what we first of all hear, and she feels a sense of success. Now, the other person without the biological vulnerability will think, you know, jolly good, I've had a bit of success, but she won't get the same positive feel. She won't feel peaceful in quite the same way. And a few days later, as we all do, we all think, forget it, can't manage it, feel too hungry, start eating. And so there seems to be something that starts to change quite quickly when you starve and how you feel that consolidates whether or not you persist with it. And does that matter how old you are? I mean, younger and younger children, boys and girls, are going on diets these days. And could that happen in an eight, nine, ten-year-old? Yes, it could. Yes, it could, unfortunately. There is a bit of research that indicates probably puberty is is quite pivotal, but we're clearly seeing an increase in eating disorders in, in pre-puberty. What's the youngest child you've treated for an eating disorder? Well I only treat 14 upwards but Mm. my colleagues have treated nine ten-year-olds quite frequently. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's the idea that, I mean, I think you kind of answered it, but, you know, that having an eating disorder is a first world problem, that people in sort of societies where life is quite a lot easier are the ones where it seems to be most prolific. And I think that would probably fuel the idea that it's not a real problem, that girls just have to get over it. But that's not the case, is it? I mean, why are we seeing more more eating disorders in developed worlds where life is potentially easier? Um, So I suppose it's whether or not the triggers are present to show the vulnerability. So the biological vulnerability is exposed through extreme stress with dieting. And so dieting is definitely a Western phenomenon and a 20th and 21st century phenomenon. And so that's why we have uncovered this sea of potential eating disorders and that's probably why we're not seeing it in a third world country what's interesting is actually when you take somebody from a third world culture into a western world they appear to have even greater rates of eating disorders compared to somebody who's been born and brought up in a western culture That's really interesting. But actually also looking historically, it's not as if it never existed, even, you know, centuries ago. Mm. And there's the Mm. fasting saints. uh, What what do we call them? The holy anorexics, yeah, 14th, 15th, 16th century. And that was quite a useful excuse. If you you had an eating disorder, you'd go into that line of life. Yes, exactly. And, And when we think, well, we talk about body image and eating disorders, there's obviously a whole section of diagnosis of eating disorders in people without body image difficulties. And that may seem odd to say, because people always think anorexia, bulimia must mean body image. But in fact, you don't necessarily need that criteria for an eating disorder. Some people have a sense of control through their control of food, which appear to produce the same emotional positives that dieting for body image would produce. So the holy anorectics were starving themselves and it was a sense of purity and cleanliness or cleansing rather than body image driven. Um, And we're pretty sure that that was the, the, the most obvious form of anorexia that we can see looking back through history. But eating disorders are on the rise, aren't they? And I'm sure part of that is that we're better at diagnosing what has always been a problem. But, I mean, how influential do you think the sort of cult of perfection is this sort of pressure that certainly you know younger children have from social media the Mm. idea that everyone's always looking amazing and they aren't you know quite as wonderful as their how how important is that impact it's very important that's one of the major triggers and that's why the rates are increasing yes we're better at diagnosing but actually the pressure that people are now under and the perfectionism is, is part of that is without a doubt creating social pressure of thinness and the thin ideal so yes that's the major trigger and that's increasing you know even 10 years ago when I look back at what my patients were exposed to it's it's far greater and obviously that is because of social media. I know I sort of think back to my sort of pubescent years and there was definitely that feeling that I wasn't quite as good as any of my friends and yet that was nothing to do with social media because the internet didn't exist and I think if I think about the pressure that I was under and I never had an eating disorder and then you sort of magnify that with the window I have onto social media which you know I, I use it for my own benefit but I can see how you can get sucked in and I can see how before you have that strength of character Mm, to sort of mm. say well I mean this is all a bit ridiculous Mm. it does become you know a very strong influence in your life Mm. and how you think Mm. most definitely and even with all that knowledge I think we are very very influenced in ways we don't realize and I I think for myself being in the business that I'm in and been in for decades that I am exposed to that. I do have feelings and thoughts, wishes, desires, fantasies, whilst looking at these images. And if if that's how I feel with my knowledge, goodness knows what an adolescent girl or boy is exposed to. With a predisposition to this anyway. With a predisposition, (laughs) yes. And it's important to say we're talking about eating disorders, but there is a far greater problem affecting far more people to do with body image dissatisfaction and low self-esteem because of that. We talked about, you know, obviously a biological predisposition. What about sort of the hereditary element? What about if you're a mother and you have experienced an eating disorder? Mm. How much more at risk are your children to having an eating disorder? Eating disorders are created out of a patchwork or jigsaw puzzle of of factors the biology as i've said is really important the biology takes the form of 
whether the brain chooses to function in a different way when it's starved or stressed, but it also the biology is part of personality traits that are inherited, and those are perfectionism, what we call trait anxiety, so your natural level of anxiety, as well as perhaps some obsessionality or high drive. And those are all personality traits that are very useful. They make you terribly successful in life, and you certainly wouldn't want to be without them. But what they do tend to do is make you self-critical. That just goes with the territory. And so those are the inherited factors that we see first I mean, I see that... pretty much bar none of the children I've seen in my practice who have had eating disorders Mm. they're all high achieving bright talented mostly girls who have actually usually been quite easy to parent in their younger childhood because they've done everything that they should do uh, better than they than their parents would have expected which makes it often even more of a shock for parents when this serious essentially mental illness rises around puberty or later. Yes, it does. And it, it, they tend to be girls who develop anorexia, particularly can can be caricatured into the idea of, of having done everything right mm. and not really stepped off the, the straight and narrow. And I, I think that mothers with eating disorders need to be reassured uh, that although we have that biological component and it is a you know a chance that their child will inv- it will inherit those personality traits as well as the biological functioning of the brain they are in a very powerful position to influence the impact of the triggers and so a lot of the women that i deal with who then go on to have children find that they are in a position where they want to do something about their own eating disorder and that becomes quite a pivotal point but they're then able to i think adopt perhaps much a much more conscious relationship with food and health that they're in a position that they could influence positively with their daughters and mm. sons and is that irrespective of whether they've I mean, I was going to say, have it treated, have had it treated in the past, because if it's never been treated and you only really become aware of it when you have children, you have to go through that whole process of actually yeah. treating yourself. And that is very, very difficult. Very yeah, difficult. it is. It, it is definitely a point of contact with services, though, when women become pregnant who have eating disorders. It's an opportunity. But of course, there are a lot of untreated eating difficulties and eating disorders. Again, I mean, again, something I see quite a lot in the patients I look after is, you know, successfully treated eating disorder as an adolescent or, or young adult that then rears it he- rears its head again in pregnancy mm. because of the body changes and emotional changes that are going on at that time. Mm. How's that sort of best dealt with? Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I think generally people do need support at that point, and I would always advocate discussing uh, with the midwife about what support is available. And traditionally, we have weighed people quite regularly and uh, given them a a band of weight to be in, which puts some boundaries around and helps people feel that that's being paid attention to so they don't go above or below it. Um, But I think a lot of psychological support is needed at that point to help them adjust not just the body image, but but the demands afterwards Mm. and to actually sometimes normalise the feelings afterwards, the low mood, the sleep deprivation, the anxiety, the panic... The lack of control. Uh, the lack of control. Yeah, perfect storm for somebody yeah. with an eating disorder. But it's, it, I think it's important to network people up at that point. Too. And I suppose anticipating any issues you might have, because anticipated problems are probably usually easier dealt with than yes, unanticipated yeah. problems. And I guess, you know, I totally get that, you know, if you've, you've, you've battled an eating disorder and then suddenly you're a mother and you think, now I'm foisting my issues on my daughter. I mean, it's, mm. it's mm. all pretty negative. But actually... You know, great to be able to parent a child and you know that, you know, if they are, you know, predisposed to getting an eating disorder, at least you understand it. Because it's really difficult if your child has some issue that you just don't get. You know, you're coming at it from a stronger position if you at least can understand it. And I suppose that's quite a good way of interpreting what could be interpreted as negative as actually really positive. Very much so. And I I think, again, some of my patients tell me the groups that they're in and the the comments they hear from the mothers without eating disorders about what you should and shouldn't eat, how you should and shouldn't look. I think, actually, they can have a great deal more knowledge and be able to impart it in a much more emotionally intelligent way. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it's not just girls. I mean, I know that eating disorders historically seem to be affecting more girls than boys, but are you seeing actually as many boys? I think a lot more boys, and traditionally it's about 10%, but we we know that we miss the diagnosis. Because we we, don't think they're going to get it. Well, I I think we're just not, not open, perhaps, to the different ways in which they show themselves. And so the body image diversity is probably more hidden through gym exercise but it is often sort of this obsessional exercise it is frequently that that is the presenting feature isn't it yes which often then goes hand in hand with controlled eating or protein drinks and that sort of thing it is very much yeah driven driven through that and it gets normalized at gyms very easily and Mm. you tend to be within a peer group who are adopting similar behaviors and again, you know, if you're vulnerable biologically, you'll keep quiet if you're having more difficulty, whereas all around you are doing these strange practices and they're mm. able to get away with it. Mm. And a lot of people say to me, but well, they do it, why can't I? Well, you, you can't actually afford to do it because of the impact on your brain and body. Because Le- of your genetic Because of your genetic predisposition, yeah. But I, I think it's also important to say that even when we pick up men with eating disorders, they frequently drop out of follow-up appointments. Mm. And so we're, we're still not kind of offering them what they need or mm. what they can relate to. And mm. if they enter into treatment, we have a greater dropout rate. So I think we've got a lot of work to do. And that's interesting also, isn't it, when you're thinking about treatment, is, is how that changes from childhood, adolescence to adulthood. Because suddenly, as an adult, you're 18, you're an adult, and suddenly mm. the responsibility is yours for treatment. Mm. If you haven't quite got better yet, mm. that's quite difficult. It is that transition period, notorious, we called it, falling through the gap. Mm. And that's, yeah. But back to boys, I mean, if you think you just need to look at, you know, products for boys, there's suddenly a lot more pressure on men to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, you get male makeup, which is now sort of mainstream. There's this whole sort of gr- grooming and haircuts and body hair you know grooming exactly gardening I guess (laughs) which you know when when I was growing up you know men were men and they were hairy and Mm. kind of how they were I mean Mm. there was pressure on women to sort Mm. of look a certain way but I definitely see that's now changing for men and presumably that is also having an influence that that will be lowering the threshold uh, which we we see disorders emerge Talk me through, so obviously more, more women than men, or girls, let's say, girls than boys. If they're suffering with an eating disorder and it hasn't been treated yet, it's this cycle, isn't it? It's this obsessive cycle about thinking about food, exercise. Describe what it's like in someone's head for so that. So I think the main giveaway for me is this preoccupation mm. that influences your happiness, your self-esteem and what you do. And most girls with most girls and boys, men and women with eating disorders, describe it being their main preoccupation. Mm. And if you ask them to think about what's the most important thing for their self-esteem, we will all have a range of things that we call upon, and we will probably balance them. But somebody with an eating disorder will probably, again, have a range, but actually the number one is, is weight and shape. And without that being in the right place for them, they will feel devastated. They don't want to go out. Uh, and interact in the same way they would have done a few years before, or it impacts on their relationships, their friendships. And they'll often behave in ways, particularly towards their parents, which can seem completely unacceptable. And they, in retrospect, or even at the time, think, think to themselves, how, how, can I, how can I have said that to my mother? Yes. Um, yeah. they, they, I often hear that in recovered anorexics, is that you know, I could hear these words coming out of my mouth, but it was, it was the illness talking, it wasn't me. Yes, it's the extreme emotion that I think mm. people experience, and the anger and fear. And a, a lot of times I say to parents, you know, this treatment for anorexia is the treatment of fear and ambivalence Mm. and we've got to understand those emotions because that's mobilizing them in a way that you probably can't understand that isn't the way they used to be and so for for that individual it it is that level of fear they will say and do things that they ordinarily 
wouldn't do or don't feel comfortable about at mm. all. But they quite literally are trying to defend their lives. Mm. That's how it feels. Mm. And that sort of understanding what they're experiencing, I think, is probably really important. I mean, like I said, I've, I've never experienced that. But how... So, you know, I would come back from Christmas holidays. We all put on a little bit of weight often over the Christmas holidays. And I sort of think, oh, I'd be happier, a couple of pounds lighter. Over the next month, I'll do a bit more exercise and we'll get there. <laughs> Whereas presumably <laughs> someone who has an unhealthy relationship with food, they don't want to go out. And that sort of extra, whatever it is, bit of weight affects their every part of, of their being. And they mm. lose all confidence rather than thinking, okay, this is something I'm in a position to fix. And I, in the meantime, I'm well and happy and it's fine. Mm. Is that, would you, would you describe I think it's a good description. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's about how profound that impact is with the rest of us. We're thinking, I could do with losing a couple of pounds, but as you say, I'll, I'll just do slightly different things the next month or so. Or somebody with an eating disorder wouldn't yeah. wouldn't feel like that. They cut out the four mince pies a day. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah. if you if you if you're a mother of a teenage girl or adolescent child, what are the things you should be looking out for, or what are the signs that mm. that they may be developing sort of unhealthy? So it's important to say that the signs that we have that we know about mm. are really an extreme of adolescence. And so when I say this list, lots of mums of adolescent girls and boys panic mm. uh, and say yes that they are doing those, but it's, it's whether they're doing them all and for a long period. Of time so the, the most important thing I, I think is weight fluctuations are, are they significant can you see them and are they avoidant of food are they starting to get really fatty around food are they starting to skip meal times how often do you see your adolescent for three meals a day probably you don't but mm. have you noticed that that's dropped off quite dramatically have they become vegetarian or vegan are they becoming much more moody and difficult are they starting to avoid their peers are they starting to avoid socializing around food are they withdrawing and not communicating so any any parent of an adolescent child will recognize all of those mm. so, which is why I'm keen to say don't panic it yeah. is about the persistence of them and I, I and then you're moving on and then you're checking you're thinking is there vomit in the toilet mm. you know is somebody cleaning up after themselves in the toilet mm. are they always leaving the table after food if you have pushed them to say, actually, I do want you to eat at the table, and then they're disappearing quite quickly afterwards mm. into the bathroom. So these are telltale signs. Or there's lots of sort of fights around food. Or a lot around, of fights around food, very fat. Um, one mother saying, she, she had the, to call it the cupcake test, where she'd sort of come home with some cupcakes, and, and if the child wouldn't eat, eat it, and there would be an argument around it. Mm. You know, it's a perfectly normal thing to have a cupcake together as a, a mother and daughter. Mm. But if, if that induced... Mm sort of high levels of of anger yeah. and anxiety then there's probably a problem yes definitely yes most definitely mm. and uh, you know looking back parents frequently say i did notice a few months beforehand that all the sweets went but i just thought it was a phase and of course there are lots of phases like that so i wouldn't want wouldn't want people to be alarmed at the first sign of it but mm. yet frequently that's a good test and 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 so socializing not around food so joining the party late after the meal with yes, their friends very much so um, yes that's skipping the fast food skipping pizza express and yeah mcdonald's yeah. and yeah and as you said all of us do this occasionally you know the odd time but it's that persistent um, it's the persistence of always it. being unable to eat what's on the table because you've decided to give up a certain kind of gluten or whatever it is yes yeah Yes, it is the persistence. So, I mean, a lot of listeners, I think, will be, you know, will have, won't have any children with eating disorders or much younger children and will be listening to this. And um, is there anything we can do as parents to try and set up our children to have the best, healthiest relationship with food? And obviously, if, you know, if they've got the predisposition, it's harder to avoid it. But what can we, what can we do to help? So I think it's always really important to start that conversation by saying, you know, I have parents who've been right on the ball, mm. right from the start, worried about eating disorders, did everything, but their child developed one. And that's because the biology is the biology and mm. it can trigger at any point. So I would hate a parent to think that they haven't done something mm. and that's why the eating disorder has arisen. So it's the opposite. It's what can we do to kind of shape it? And if we're lucky, that, 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 that can help. Certainly, I always say to parents, you know, it's about this environment we're in now as to how successful the treatment is. And so you can do a lot. That means if your child develops an eating disorder, we have a much greater chance of success in treatment. And that is about developing health and balance around food and body image. But more importantly, and all the preventative studies are looking at self-esteem, positive self-esteem and positive body esteem. And never mind eating disorders. That helps the quality of life of, of all kids adolescents adults and how do we do that well, I, I think it's always about relating to your child in 
terms of being positive about personal attributes, Mm -hmm. about relationships and personality traits. It's about building self-pride and balance. I mean, I think it's about... I, I, I see this with my children. It's about looking at the positives rather than saying it's, it either falls into the category of good and bad. So, for example, you've got a child that finds reading harder. Is that that they're a bad reader? Or is actually the fact that they find reading a bit harder means that they're going to be more tenacious because they're learning that resilience from struggling with reading? And I guess you can translate that into sort of body image. You know, on the one hand, you can look at big thighs as a sort of negative because it doesn't fit into the skinny jeans that are all the range. But at the same time, people with big thighs allows you, you know, you, you're probably really strong. You're probably a really good runner. And even if you're not, if you had to be a really, really good runner, about sort of flipping the what can be perceived as a negative to a positive. And I think, you know, it probably goes beyond, you know, eating disorders and image. I think actually if you can take that view in life, mm. you know, you didn't get the job. Is that about, oh, you didn't get the job and you failed and they didn't want you? Or is there a better job waiting for you out there? Yeah, Does that give yes. you an opportunity to look into new jobs, mm. to you know, develop new relationships with different people that mm. might well turn out more positive? Mm. It's about flipping that. and Very much building resilience. Yeah. Absolutely, it is very much about that. And I, I always think that the, the one trait that we probably look at in terms of uh, causing eating disorders or anxiety or stress is perfectionism. And I always say to my patients, you know, Perfectionism is a difficult trait because you are self-critical. That goes with the territory. You want 110% and you don't get it and therefore you criticise yourself. Whereas a non-perfectionist might go for 110% but they wouldn't, their their inability to get it would not result in a self-criticism. It would be, what do I do now to see if I could get back or achieve the 110%? And so perfectionism is a great trait. It makes people very successful. So all you've got to do really is tame it. And that's what you're trying to promote in the in the, the mothers with eating disorders in relating to their children. How do you help them with that perfectionism to see that it's a useful trait, but you need to tame the self-criticism? And it, it, is, it is about reducing that stress level uh, and taking advantage of a good personality trait. There is definitely, I find, you know, if someone pays me a compliment, my initial reaction is... You know, someone says, are you looking lovely today? I'm like, oh, oh, I do. I feel awful. I've got bags under my eyes or whatever. You know, rather than say, oh, thank you. I love mm. hearing that. Mm. We sort of have this, you know, this idea that, no, no, we can't, you know, we can't be sort of so, so sort of positive. And I think there is therefore a bit of a, it's it's easy to criticize yourself. Oh, God, my big fat feet mm. or my, mm. my mm. wobbly thighs. <laughs> you know, it's a really sort of normal thing. And I think if we as parents keep on talking in our about ourselves in front of our children like that is this is something that's influencing them well you know you know whereas if we sort of take back take a step back and think god our bodies do amazing things Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. getting up and living and it's one of the things we talk about in the bump class we talk a bit about your body after you've given birth and how it is often very different and i i'm really honest with them and i describe what it's going to look like and it do not paint paint a pretty picture Mm -hmm. but at the same time i always say listen just step back for a moment and think about what your body did it Mm -hmm. created a new life you know Mm. this isn't just a doll this is a human that's a you know, able to think and will make you laugh mm. and might well invent something amazing in their life. And that's all come from your body. So rather than looking at the negatives of your body, think about the positives. Yeah, our body's a wonderful, wonderful tool. Yeah. And it, it's the interface between the rest of the world and, and ourselves. And it allows us to interface in the world in glorious ways as well as difficult ways. But it provides us with a form of expression. Mm. It provides us with strength, with locomotion, with joy and so uh, I I think as parents we can very much alter how our child relates to their body by putting forward very positive body image and a a self-respect and being positive ourselves and genuinely believing it rather than thinking yes although there is there is quite a lot of work in the body image world that indicates that that learning to talk positively about yourself which feels very clunky and alien first of all is a way forward Mm. and that the more we appraise ourselves positively and get into the habit of it the more likely we are therefore to convince our brains that we haven't got something to hide or be shameful but certainly if if you're in terms of our own body image if we cover ourselves up or we genuinely 
believe we've something to hide and therefore we dress, dress differently, we interact differently, your brain becomes convinced you have got something to hide. Mm. And so if we just translate that towards our kids, then you know they will pick up that message and they will think that there's something shameful that should be hidden. And so we do, we are in charge of how we convey that message. So um, allowing your children to see you know, lots of normal, different body shapes. Diversity. You know, from a very young age is, is really important, not hiding our own bodies from them. I've done so many podcasts with professionals and what comes up again and again is, you know, the idea that you know, children will model their behaviour and what, how they see us, their parents behaving. And we were doing a really interesting podcast about grief the other day and there was the whole idea of modelling a really good way to, to grieve if, if that's what your family is going through. And I think, you you know, that can very much be translated into they see us critiquing our bodies incessantly or they see us about being really positive about our bodies and that's something that they will learn to emulate in, in, in their way. And what about sort of dieting as parents? You know, we're, we're teaching them that that's normal, presumably. If, and, we're, you know, everyone will go on a diet again. But but how can we do that in a healthy way? Well, I think it's it's the obvious it's yeah. the obvious statement of uh, of balance yeah. and that you are paying attention to a message of health, not mm. of the thin body ideal, yeah. which are, they're very different body ideals. Health and thin yeah, are so completely you're different. Your children that you're on this diet because you want to feel better rather than look better. Yes, or your, my cholesterol's high, or my sugar's on the brink, or yeah. I have put on a few more pounds, and my family has diabetes, so yeah. I'm paying attention and I'm being proactive. And it's not drastic. It's not drastic. There are just small changes over a long period of time mm. that lead to health. Mm. Someone said to me. When you're a parent, remember you are being watched the whole time. Yes. I think it's really it's true. <laughs> yes. A bit scary. Yes. But yeah. it is, you know, yes. it is true. They're watching, yes. they don't know how to behave, they don't know how to live. No, and they're no. taking all of that from you, from mm. really the moment they're born. And so I, actually watching you eat, I suppose, is, well, I mean, that's something I always try and say to my patients is try, even from a really young age, to all eat together. Mm. You know, don't have those children's meal times and adults' meal times. Yeah, most definitely. And, and again, it's, you know, before, you know, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we were thinking that families who didn't have meals together, bread, eating disorders, whereas now actually it's families who have meals together can spot the eating disorder yes. and we can actually do a much more effective family-based intervention yeah. uh, around the treatment of an eating disorder. So that, that's, that's, yeah. that's why. But, you know, meals are meant to be enjoyed as families. They're yeah. meant, we're meant to be together. We're meant to have that time out in which we can all sit together and eat and enjoy a very basic thing. How honest should we be with our children i mean should we be teaching them about anorexia and bulimia is there you know an idea that if we teach them about it we can give them the skills to convey to us if they feel that they've got a problem or is there an argument that by sort of saying well actually bulimia is when you eat lots but you vomit it all up that you're sort of giving them ideas and they think oh gosh that's a brilliant way to control my weight i hadn't thought of that mm. what, what, what's the answer there well I, I think the research indicates that the the vulnerability factors are not the knowledge of the eating disorder i i think i'd probably say if i think about my own child then i would be conveying to him probably around about now as an adolescent that eating disorders exist and people become very unhappy about themselves physically and they feel they can control how they feel and who they are through what they eat and their weight. I think it's important so you don't do any harm by educating about eating disorders, but I don't think I would necessarily give them all the facts of, say, vomiting or laxatives or water tablets or diet pills. I think that's probably for later on if that makes sense. Yeah. You certainly can't do any harm by saying to a child, I'm concerned about your eating. I'm concerned that you're disappearing from the table. And at that point, I would be saying, I'm worried that you're vomiting into the toilet and getting rid of your food. So I would name it at that point. But in a general conversation, with, I guess with an adolescent, I would be talking about eating disorders and what they were without their specific detail of behaviours. Or just having a conversation around how they, their friends are with food. Yes. You know, even if you have yeah. no concerns about them, do you have any friends who, don't, who are always on diets or do you have any friends who you think might vomit, that kind of thing? Yes. Well, often just open up that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, communication as ever with everything in parenting is, is so important. Yes, yeah, keeping the dialogue open and keeping those conversations going and that they can start in a very small way early on and you don't have to deliver a whole chunk of information in one go that would probably shock your child mm. but if you're entering into that conversation through health and body esteem and then moving on to some people find it very difficult and some people control their food and have you seen that happen around you mm. uh, then that's an important that's an important vehicle into 
that discussion with them. Yeah. Uh, what about, you know, food for, uh, certainly in my household, is kind of, I feel I love food. I love cooking. I love eating food. I feel so often I cook my children amazing meals and they're like, mm, no, it's not chicken nuggets. I don't like it. And I think, oh my God, I get really annoyed around it. How do you, I mean, I don't want to make a bigger deal about food than it actually is. But what if you have got a really fussy eater? How insistent should you be? that they should eat their food or that they should try new things or yeah so there 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 used to be a school of thought that said you know fussy eaters are okay because at a certain point their taste buds will alter and they will just pick up with food and you can't alter it and there are super tasters in which they get these you know certain vegetables feel uh, taste particularly you know acrid and therefore you can't push that at that point but i think we now know that the more opportunity you present with different tastes actually is beneficial but you are going to get children who won't who won't go with it and so I would just be advocating a real step back at that point and make it as balanced as possible I'd have some basic rules that you have to try everything you know two or three times before you're absolute about not wanting it and you also you know you can't move on to desserts until you finish the main course so real basic common sense rules I think that most parents would know but we do get without a doubt some fussy eaters and you can have a family of children in which there's one fussy eater and everybody else is fine and you've done everything and the same you've done with everything all of the same yeah like yeah. Chiara you were a really fussy eater I was a eater. very fussy eater as a child and now I eat everything <laughs> there you go I don't there you eat. go well that would be the classic that yeah. would be the classic presentation yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about if it's the opposite end of the spectrum? What if your child really enjoys food Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're noticing that they're putting on some weight? How do you have that conversation? Because, you know, I I remember actually being told, you know, maybe I was putting on a bit bit of weight when I was sort of 15, 16 and, and hating that, really feeling like that was a hard piece of news to get. And I wouldn't want to upset my child. But at the same time, you know, it is a conversation you have to have. Well, again, I'm always advocating balance. And so rather than going and having a conversation and saying, I think you're getting fat, it is about now that you're entering into puberty, it's really important to be balanced around health, exercise, food. And these are the times in which you lay down the foundations. You lay down the foundations for your you know, muscle memory and your athletic ability and your lung capacity. And therefore, we need a certain amount of exercise going on. And we lay down the foundations for our body in terms of food and balance and health. And you could say, I've noticed that you eat far more puddings than 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 main meals and you're filling up on sugar and it's not healthy. Mm. So I, I don't I think you talk about balance and rate of growth. You avoid words like fat. Mm. I wouldn't go in with that word, but I would say you know, I've noticed I've been watching that you eat far more puddings or I'm worried about your health. I'm worried about your health. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and you make small corrections. As a parent again, you can guide. You are not making sugar so available. You are insisting that they do a certain amount of activity each and day. And if you've got a young child, you know, you, it's very much in your control. It's, it's about completely what in your control at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also presumably what you're eating, you know, yourself, you know, if you're sort of, you know, eating a twirl and you're insisting that they're eating rice cakes, yes. you know, they're going to want the twirl at some stage. <laughs> which, yes, which, which isn't right, is that you can't, you can't eat rice cakes. You can't <laughs> but eat rice cakes. A, but if you've got a, a child who, who is a little bit overweight and they're young, but they're eating a healthy, balanced diet, and you know mm. that because you, mm. you know, you're in control mm. of what they're eating, then presumably there's nothing you should do about that. No, that's right. And there is diversity in this world. Yeah. And we should promote body esteem. And I think it, as a parent, you need to make sure are all those domains covered. Are they eating a balanced food plan? Mm. Are they exercising enough? And actually, ch- you know, also ask yourself, is it, why do I think they're overweight? Mm. I, I would really is check it more that my parents. problem than is their it more problem? my problem? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the lack of diversity of body image types, as I said, I think affects all of us now. And we have to be very careful that we're not just assuming they are slightly chubby or overweight. Mm. And that actually this is, an, this is the, the diversity of body image. Mm. And, and while you said sort of fluctuation in weight isn't good, you know, there's a certain extent to which all of our body weight fluctuates over the time of year. Don't we naturally mm. put on a bit more weight mm. in the winter? I mean, not a huge mm. amount. But, you know, then during puberty, people often, you know, skinny children often, you know, put a little bit of weight. And, and there's a mm. certain amount of normality to that, isn't there? There is, most definitely, and especially around adolescence, people store up body stores before they suddenly go through growth spurts. And again, as a parent, we have to be able to tolerate that diversity and it's just about checking in with yourself I think with the conversation you're having with the rights and wrongs and 
your child is one of a diverse group of other children Mm. Um, well thank god for lots of lycra in my clothes because (laughs) it just means that you can you know without having to have the really uncomfortable jeans because you've put on a little bit of weight because it's winter Mm. (laughs) yeah now what if someone's listening to this and they're worried that maybe their child might be uh worried about might be developing an unhealthy relationship with food what's that sort of first port of call if you have concerns as a parent i mean obviously you talked about talking to them and Mm. and and saying Mm. i'm worried about you know your relationship with food but if they wanted to seek some professional advice Mm. where would you go to so uh, it's always the the primary position is to have the conversation um, with your child and lots of mums say to me I'm really worried about having that conversation as if I would trigger something Mm. no definitely have the conversation definitely and most of my patients when they're in recovery say thank goodness my mum or dad or sister stepped in because somehow in my head I'd convinced myself it was fine and it wasn't Mm. until they said that I thought oh maybe this isn't okay and that was the change for them didn't appreciate it really reacted violently against it Mm. and didn't talk to them for ages is a frequent response I get but you have to persist as a parent mm. and I think you go in and have that conversation again and again and you list you say I'm, I'm, I'm worried because of this because of this because of this and then you're going to say actually I've been on the Beat website and they've got a good resource for people to read why don't you read that to see if you relate to any of that or you would I think ultimately say listen I, I'm really worried and I want you to come with me to the GP and I suppose, you know, I've talked a bit about the podcast about how to have a good conversation with your children because it's not mm. like you can just sit them down and have one conversation and that's it. Very mm. often it's it's a few conversations. Mm. But also finding the right time when they're in maybe the right frame of mind. Also, you know, sometimes sitting down in front of someone and looking them in the eye and having that conversation is a very intense way to have a conversation. Mm. Sometimes if you're walking or you're driving and you're sort of not focused solely on each other that can be an easier way to have a difficult conversation yes I agree I mean as a mother of an adolescent being in the car is the easiest place ever to have those conversations is it you're concentrating well, they, can't get away. <laughs> they can't get away that's true they can't get away locked in <laughs> I, th- I think when it comes to eating and body image concerns, I tend to say to parents that who've already gone in a couple of times and got a really hostile response that you probably could try that tactic of something less confrontational. But a lot of the time you've got to have the conversation. And so I think it's warning and them. To, and you've got to have the confrontation. You've got mean, to have you the never have that you... conversation with someone developing an eating disorder that is, oh, Without yes, confrontation. I think yeah. I probably do. Let's yeah. go and see the doctor together. Yeah. It will be, I hate you or horrible, you yes. know, really, really abusive conversation where you'll, Very you, much. you'll think, oh, God, I don't want to have that again. Yes, and it will be a few times yeah. it happens before you get anywhere. Yeah. So I tend to say to parents that you say, listen, I'm, I'm concerned about you and I'd like to have a conversation with you tomorrow you know in the afternoon and uh, I know you I know you don't want to have that conversation and I know I've tried to have it with you before but it's very important that I we sit down and I tell you why and, and what I think and so you you give them a bit of time and Morning, space yeah yeah and then you're determinedly going in and mm-hmm. I say to parents you know you're going to have to go in four or five times mm-hmm. and eventually you're going to have to put your foot down and say actually you're coming with me to the GP mm. and if you don't I'm going anyway because you you have to push it yeah yeah. And and the GP then obviously I, I see this a lot and you know then decide on the best sort of referral pathway, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always mean inpatient treatment doesn't mean the whole family has to be turned upside down, mm-hmm. although sometimes that is necessary. Mm-hmm. So it's rare that it's inpatients. It's rare. It's a small section. The earlier you treat, the better. The sooner you get younger children in, the far better the prognosis, mm. and it generally is about outpatient treatment. Mm. And you and know, how, how what is what kind of outpatient treatment is that? Talking to someone, talking what? to somebody. Cognitive behavioural treatment has got the most probably research based to it, but there are other forms. A lot it, of family therapy. And a, a, for the younger children, a family based intervention. It is about empowering the parents to take control of the food and feed their child. Well, they ha- yeah. And they have to become quite controlling. So they that's quite to, difficult yes. for parents who, yes. who haven't been controlling in their parenting up to that point and it's who very, might have been yeah. quite flexible in their parenting mm. to have to take control and be quite dominant in their role as the feeder of the anorectic. It is, it is. But it's also allowing the parent to understand that they are not to blame. It's removing that layer of guilt, I think, really empowers parents to actually take action in Mm. a way that they've really wanted to all along. Mm. But also to develop that feeling of compassion and empathy because Mm. they recognise it as a disorder. Mm. It's really important to support them in that. And most of my work 
is with parents discussing those issues and a lot of them are then able to move forward with the kind of intervention from some of the dietetics that we offer but it is it is enabling that parent to to move forward and and the parenting team you know i think yep. very often it and again from experience it's quite difficult to get sometimes the fathers on board if they don't really understand they don't often don't understand it as a significant serious mental illness yes yeah Um, i think it's more difficult for men because it's not generally in the conversation in the way that it will have been would have been for for women but i do recommend that they look at the beat website or there's some great books from king's college particularly professor janet treasure's written a lot of books on anorexia and caring for a loved one with an eating disorder is a fantastic book for for parents to read and I think there there are there are some good podcasts actually mm. from uh, women who have taken their children through treatment mm. and um, can explain what it is. Mm. Yeah, and actually, it's important to remember that you know, as as difficult as it can be to to face the idea of treatment, which is which is is going to be difficult for the family, mm. not and disruptive for everyone in the family. Not treating it mm. can lead to a whole host of mm. psychological and physical conditions leading you know from anything from osteoporosis to infertility to mental health problems to uh, yes. death i mean some people yes. die from yes. this five, yeah five to ten percent yes and that's number. it's a it's a huge morbidity and mortality if it's untreated mm. and the definite message is the earlier that you treat the better mm. and there are lots of success stories but the longer you leave it the it, it's dramatic what happens mm. even in its quietest form you end up with somebody who's had it for several years who hasn't had proper relationships who hasn't been able to have children who haven't particularly developed in their career or in their sense of self and identity mm. and lead a very you know, narrow life mm. of existence without without mm. real quality of with, being. With intense turmoil going on in their head probably most of the time. Mm. The high rates of anxiety and depression. And yeah. suicide as a result. Exactly, yes, yes, unfortunately, yeah. And, and how successful is treatment? I mean, do, long term, do you ever totally, truly get over it? Or is it something like alcoholism where you're basically going to be in some form of treatment for the rest of your life? Are you, are you ever recovered at anorexic? I think there are lots of people who've recovered from eating disorders. And of course, I've talked a lot about the biology and the vulnerability, and we can't get away from that. But it's not just what creates an eating disorder. It takes on a personal meaning for people. The triggers have a personal meaning. It weaves its way into your identity. And so you are left with a vulnerability. So, for instance, you could develop glandular fever or flu or purposefully diet, and you could trigger feelings and thoughts again. But hopefully if you've been through treatment and you've been successful, um, you have a a better understanding of who you are as a person Mm. and why that illness may interact with you specifically. Uh, And you are very much geared up to promoting your own self-esteem and body image so yes you do have a vulnerability yes you can't really afford to drastically diet and during times of stress you have to be monitor whether your weight's quietly dropping and you hadn't noticed because that's usually the way it shows people don't purposefully diet they just realize they've lost half a stone and they're starting to feel a bit odd again and so each person has to have a, a set of what we call red flags to understand if they're entering into it into that phase then they, they need to put the hand up for help and it, it's not something that you should think you should have to do on your own so yes you do have a vulnerability but I would hate people to think that they were in some way scarred and had to be hyper vigilant because I don't believe that to be so once people have had a full recovery well I mean I'm sure largely also because the treatment that a large part of the treatment is the therapy which is giving you tools to deal with it if it happens again yes it's, it's so te- if you've it's, got those tools yes then the you're trigger in a better comes position. and yeah. you you can often deal with it without even needing help you, we, and I always say to my patients you know one of the things you've got to remember really boring as it is is that food plan mm. so when times start being a bit odd and you can start to feel it starting. You've mm. got to start, well, is the stress that needs solving? Mm. You know, do I need to have conversations with people? Is my self-esteem in order? But actually, at the end of the day, it's like, well, is my food intact? Is mm. my plan there? Have I got my three meals, three snacks? Horribly old-fashioned, mm. but it works. Mm. Have I got a distribution of food? Am I starting to cut things out? Or, you know, have I missed the butter off my toast? It's simple things like that. Mm. And if you can't put them in at that point that's when you say actually I need a bit more help mm. and and frequently people are coming back and they just need to check in a few times they just need a witness and they're off they're fine mm. they're okay mm. so I don't want people to to feel it's the end of normal life mm. uh, equally so you, you you can't forget it completely yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of 
positive body image, you know, is there anything that we can be doing in terms of being more accepting of compliments? Or teaching our children to be more accepting. And how do we compliment our children? We don't want to compliment them too much, but at the same time, we need to show them that it's okay to accept a compliment about their body. Very much so. So we talk about the negative influences on body image and we forget the positives. And the positives are allowing in your own positive thoughts and not feeling that those have to be about disguised. About yourself. Yeah, about, your disgu- yeah. about, about your, yourself and your body. That we, we don't have to disguise those. We're not yeah. being kind of arrogant or full of you know pride before a fall by saying, actually, I, I think I look quite nice or I look quite good. Or if somebody says you look great today, th- saying thank you very much. As if you are supposed to turn that down or bat that away and well it's in our bashful. culture to say oh don't be silly I look awful mm. or mm. you know well you don't want to be accused of being smug do you no but how bizarre that we're not allowed to enjoy ourselves in yes. that way how odd well yeah. what's the difference between smug and proud you know yeah. that actually the sim- sometimes the emotions are very much blurred well it's important though that the but the point is that the compliments are being given on lots of different body images not the perfect body image yes. that people yes. aspire to yes and it's accepting compliments when we get them. Yeah. And, and if we see our children kind of turning them down or feel ourselves turning them down, it's to think, hang on a minute, mm. why am I not allowed to mm. feel good about myself or like myself? So compliment as, as parents complimenting each other in front of children. Very much is a good idea, um, yes. And then, but yes. then also responding. So if your husband says, you look lovely today, say, thank you. Yeah. That made me feel really good. Yes, very and, much and so. And sort of always yes. articulating that. It's so we're so powerful as parents, aren't we? My daughter has a big birthmark on her arm, and it's something that I love about her because it's part of what makes her unique. Mm. And I was always very aware that you know she might one day be. Te- I mean, I had lots of friends who were teased about birthmarks and that sort of non-conformity. Mm. But she said to me the other day that it's her favourite part of her body, and oh, I lovely. felt really proud that oh, that oh, positive uh, mm. reinforcement of a birthmark had, had very you know, much. Yeah, we'll see. She's only seven, so <laughs> 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 I'm not blowing my own trumpet. But it did. It just did strike. Me as how powerful we as parents can be. Well, it's great here chatting to you with your wealth of of information. If people are concerned and want to access a bit more information, where where, where can people go? I mean, you mentioned the Beat website. What should they Google for that? Beat.co.uk, I think. I'll put them in the episode notes. What other websites are good? King's College website's good with lots of information there. And there's an excellent book, Overcoming Binge Eating by Christopher Fairburn. He's done most of the research for bulimia and quite a lot on anorexia. And the, uh, you were mentioning The Body Project. So The Body Project is an American project by Eric Stice, and that's uh, Preventative Measures for Eating Disorders, and that is a, a educational resource and uh, a group treatment for those at risk who've got high levels of body dissatisfaction, but I think there's a wealth of information in there for people to think about, particularly parents who want to have conversations with their girls or boys about how to have those conversations and what they might be trying to question. And the last one is Media Smart, which is, again, a media literacy programme, and that's for teachers, parents, youngsters, and that, that's, again, a wealth of information about how to have those conversations. So that might be something to talk to your school about or inform yeah. your school about if yes. Yes. that's yep. not happening already. Yes. Well, thank you, Adrian. That is hugely helpful. Uh, this isn't an easy subject to talk about, but I do think it's an important one. And I hope all of you listeners have found this conversation interesting. Thank you for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. It helps us hugely if you subscribe, rate and review us. And do, of course, tell your friends about us. For the latest news on what we're recording or thinking about recording, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. It's also the best place to let me know what you want us to talk about next. Some great ideas have come in so far. But in the meantime, I hope that, as always, today's conversation has given you food for thought. Thank you for listening. And from Adrienne, Chiara and me, goodbye. 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 When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.